made my heart jump uh, in a minute when I get through the text. But there's one thing. I just want to just kind of spill it beforehand. Uh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, man, I, I look at all the things that uh, Israel's going through and, and I'm reading, uh, looking at just kind of God's recruiting and calling of Moses. Man, there's just this one statement that, um, that it just really shakes me every time. And it's the fact that God tells him that he is with him. Just a simple statement that he is with him. And it's so powerful, it's so packful of not just implication, just, just uh, yeah, implication, whatever, if you like to talk fancy, or it's just the fact that God will be with us is just this overwhelming comfort. And when you hear that, if you just knew that God was with you, would it not be well with your soul? Yeah, yeah, just well with your soul. Can we just pray that God will be with us this morning as we walk through the text? Uh, it's not enough to listen with natural ears and just do it on our own. We want God to be with us. It's not enough for, for me to stand up and just kind of blow through a few notes and pull out a few points. We need God to be with us so that what we hear and what we say is actually something redemptive. Otherwise, we're just, this is just like watching CNN or whatever station of your choice. I'm just a reporter if God's not with us. Amen? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you and we confess our individual and collective insufficiency as we peer into your holy word that you preserve for us we recognize that the ability to hear from you and then to have our faith expanded and have our faith grown and to have our faith formed Lord God is totally contingent upon you we are an insufficient people oh God the most brilliant of us Cannot wrap our brain around you, Lord God, and the most simple of us can't do it either. It must be a work of your spirit. So we beg, oh God, that you would be with us in both the preaching and you would be with us in the hearing. And then afterwards, oh God, you would be with us in the execution and the applying of your word. This we ask in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so as you already know, we are in our second installment in our series entitled The Great Escape, where we are exploring the greatness and the goodness of our God as he helps his people uh, or he delivers his people from uh, the imminent doom and gloom of them being enslaved in Egypt. But to fully appreciate the story, I want to ask you to do a couple of things. First of all, how many of you have already read ahead? You've been reading ahead. I know you may be familiar with the story. You've already read Exodus 3 and 4, just maybe in a previous life. But I'm just asking, would you read with us? I know we're already as a family on our Bible reading plans, but I want to ask you just to, as you know where we're headed in our series, would you read with us? And so that your, the, the, the soul of your heart has been kind of freshly cultivated with some familiarities. I mean, we're, we're, we're flying over two consecutive chapters at a time, so there's a lot of material to cover. And so just read over the text. And I'll tell you what's been happening is I have been reading over the passage again and again and again. And, and, and what I love is just the incredible genius of our God through the work of the Holy Spirit, as Peter would tell us, that, that, that you've got holy men of God that have been born along by the Spirit to capture this, this disclosure of God in the text. And I love that. But I not only love the fact that God caused it to happen, but also how he preserved God's word for us so that subsequent generations would be able to benefit from these great stories
testimonies of God's great and awesome work in the lives of his people. Because some of us may not have a story of our own that we can really connect to. And it's so refreshing to see the historic work of God. And so I, I, I praise God for that. But I also praise God for the genius of the Holy Spirit, not just in the capturing or the producing of the scripture and the preserving of the scripture and keeping it for us, but I also just even the way that the text aligns. So if you read Exodus chapters 3 and 4, what you would have noticed is that in the very first few verses of chapter 3, God burst on the scene with this incredible, uh, just, uh, just, just, just overwhelming presentation of himself in the burning bush. Where, 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 where Moses, is, his attention is captured, and he encounters God, and, and he sees something that both theologians today, and you know, uh, you know, I'm not a professional theologian, but I like to play one on Sunday. And, 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 and you've got, you've got the, 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 the theologians that they talk about the, 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 the burning bush and what it's all about, and here it is, you've got this bush that's burning, but yet it's not being consumed. And, and, and God calls Moses close and, and he begins to have this conversation with the eternal, uh, uh, unfathomable, awesome, and all-powerful, consuming, holy God, right there in the first few verses of chapter 3. But then in the first few verses of chapter 4, you've got this underwhelming trifecta of excuses from Moses as to why he can't do what God's calling him to do. And I believe that that, that beautiful juxtaposition of the brilliant, awesome, great glory of God in the first few chapters, and the first few verses of chapter 3, compared with the deficiency of Moses in chapter 4, sets the table for something that I want to talk about. And that is this. The worst part of my story sets the best stage for God's glory. The worst part of my story actually sets the best stage for God's glory. Can we get uncomfortable a little bit? Let's do something together, right? Let's, let's do some multicultural ministry, something that's going to make people like, what? That's so weird. Put your hand on yourself and say, the best, the worst part of my story is the best stage for God's glory. Say it with me. The worst part of my story is the best stage for God's glory. Now turn to your neighbor and say, the worst part of your story is the best stage for God's glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you like that. You like that. I like it too. This is fun. This is fun. But is there anything from the scriptures that would actually inform us of that being true? Or is that just a catchy slogan? Is there anything that we see in the text that would inform us that that is a reality? That the worst part of my story is actually the best thing for God's glory? Well, let's find out. Do me a favor, and I want you to disconnect, unhook, mentally forget, if you can, all of the, the stuff that you know about Israel now. And I want you to think about Israel as they are in the text. Put on your sandals and sink into the deep sands of the ancient Near Eastern culture, chronologically, where Israel is right now, a people who have been enslaved for multiple generations, 400 years, who came in as a clan of 60 and now are several million people, regardless of how large, who have no distinct geopolitical identity. There is no military, there is no NATO, there is no group, no League of Nations negotiating on their behalf. There is no impending release as far as they know from their perspective. They don't see the work of God happening within the grand panorama of Scripture like you and I do. Think about them for just a moment. They are not living their best life now, they are living their worst life now.
They don't have a distinct identity as a people. Culturally, generation after generation after generation have lived and died under the oppression of Egypt. They don't have a distinct identity of their own, no land to call their own, no legal, no political process that is working on their behalf. There's no one trying to get them out. The only person that's working on their behalf is God, and they don't yet know it. All they can do to provide some degree of relief is to cry out to God. They are a people that for all intents and purposes are practically hopeless. Everything that they could possibly believe in, they are, they, are, they are sunk deep within the belly of Egyptian theology and the biggest and the baddest gods that they see on the scene in the absence of any clear documentation of their own theology is the, the, is the, is the pantheon, the groups of gods of Egypt. That's all that they see. They are immersed in someone else's theology, someone else's politics, and they are on the bottom of the culture. They are living the worst part of their story. But this is the perfect stage for God's glory. Zoom out for just a moment, and I want you to consider the resume of Moses even in this moment. As God would recruit and call him to deliver his people, consider this. The last time Moses got any real airplay, he had, he had fled as a fugitive of murder from Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian. But what did Moses' own people say when they saw him slay the Egyptian on their behalf? Hey, man, what you trying to do? We didn't ask you to come in and try to be a king or an arbiter on our behalf. So he's a man without a country. He's fled to, to, to over to Midian. So he is a fugitive of Egypt and not appreciated by his own people. And this is the guy that God's going to call. Moses is not living his best life now. He's in his worst place now because he's got some deep insecurities as he anticipates what it might mean to go have to go back to Egypt. The worst part of your story is the best stage for God's glory. Let's explore that reality this morning. When we uh, opened the text this morning, we read for you Exodus. There's a few um, uh, uh, verses there. I want to read again for you Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Lean in and listen to this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know where he came to, Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. And then he says, do not come near. Take off your sandals, the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There are many different positions on uh, exactly what the burning bush says about God, this all-consuming fire, but yet the bush is not being burnt. There are some that would say, well, hey, this is just an example of his, uh, because he's, he's a God who has wrath. There are some that would say that this is a, a, a depiction of his holiness. There are some that would say that this is a depiction of Israel's condition. They are the bush that is uh, immersed in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a challenging, trying situation, but yet it's not consumed because the presence of God is preserving them. Don't know 
know which of those is the best. So I do have an opinion. But aside from opinion, here's what I would like to point out. There are several things in the passage that the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure we paid attention to, even if we didn't get the burning bush analogy perfect. Here it is. The Bible tells us that Moses came to a place called Horeb that in the Hebrew actually means waste. The word Horeb means waste. But yet this is the mount of God and this is the place that God is going to have his people to come back to and worship. One of the things that leaps off the page for me is this. A place that's previously called waste is now going to be transformed to a place called a worship place. This is the work of our God who can take something that is historically labeled as nothing and empty and fill it with his own presence and call his people to it. The wasted place becomes the worship place under God's influence. But there's more here. We look at this and we see the eternal, almighty God engaging with a temporal bush. This is the hallmark of our God. This is a God who says eternity wants to engage with the temporal and it wants to preserve the temporal. The bush is nothing to speak of and God is everything, but God, our God, the all-powerful God decides to co-locate himself with the simple things. But then he does more than that. Wherever he is, the dirt has become holy. The most base things about us, he's now all of a sudden, this is a holy place that was previously known as waste. God shows up and says, Moses, don't come any further, take off your sandals. But more than that, why would the holy God want to have a conversation with an unholy man? But this is the hallmark of our God. Our God would eventually go to, to, to call Moses actually the friend of God. Is that not awesome? A man who, who is too unholy to leave his shoes on, God would call him his friend. The, 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 the God of the universe would befriend a, a, a flawed human being, a, a murder fugitive. Is this not awesome? But this is the hallmark. This is the signature. This is how the God of the Bible rolls. The Bible will say this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the mystery of God is how, here's the mystery of God. It, it will tell us in, in that verse, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated uh, by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is a great mystery. How can the, 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 the awesome and mighty God package himself in such a finite space, the holy God have communion with unholy people and hang out with us intentionally. This is the hallmark of our God. And, it, it, and I would just say it this way. The mystery of our God is this, that he is able to engage with man while remaining unmatched, unmixed, and unmarred. He does not lose his holiness. By condescending to our space, God does not lose any points. He does not lose his edge. This is awesome. This is unfathomable. But this is the hallmark of our God. Let me say it more simply and more basically to you. You don't have a mess that God is too afraid to reach into. Can we just say that? So here it is. The holy God will commune with unholy people. The holy God would take a wasted place and make it a worship place. The holy God, who is infinite, would come in and commune with the finite. You don't have anything going on in your life that is too messy, too unholy, too broken, too bad, that is just so shipwrecked that God says, ooh, I can't touch that. You don't have anything in your life that meets that description that God's not willing to come into. That's incredible. Don't you think? 
Let me tell you, let's just, let's just feel this for a moment. How many of us, whether it's the first time father who has to go in and change a diaper, or whether it is the longtime believer who has to go share the gospel in a tough situation, how many of us bag back when we see the degree of mess before us? You got a God who says, I'm holy and I'm perfect, but there's nothing too messy that you could bring to the table that I won't reach into and that I won't speak to, and I'm still prepared to commune with you. It's not like God calls Israel to come up out of slavery and meet him at a place. He goes to get them from slavery. And this is the same place where our God would have us to know and to have us to know him. If you are currently living out the worst part of your story, trust me when I tell you, you are on the best possible stage to see God's glory. Looking further at verses 7 through 12, something powerful happens here as well. Verses 7 through 12, there, there's this, I, I, I'll bring it out in just a moment. I want to get ahead of myself. But it says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to do to a good and to a broad land flowing with milk and honey to, a play, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Pan down, if you could, to just the last verse in that paragraph, which is verse 12. But he said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have seen, that you have been with you, and you have brought the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve me on this mountain. The end game of God is to go get his people and bring them to a place where they can worship him. But God isn't calling them to get out of their own mess. How many times have you said to yourself, God, I don't feel like going to church today because I'm just not in a great place. I've kind of lived like the devil and I feel like I need to kind of spiritually take a little bit of a shower before I show up in the facility again. How many of you said to yourself, I don't believe God's listening to me. I've sinned so much in such a repeated way and I'm bogged down that I, I, I'm going to wait until I get a little bit more holy before I start trying to pray. That's the work of the enemy, and that's the bondage of the flesh, and that is the deceit of sin to make you feel like that you've got to make some kind of move to fix yourself because you can have an audience with God. I want you to look at this. There are these I statements here in these verses. It says, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction. I have heard the cries. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver. And I will bring them up so that you can serve God on this particular mountain. What's so powerful about this is where in the previous text we saw the hallmark of God. That's just how he does business. The holy is prepared to come in and engage with the unholy. But here he is, the heart of God. God operates with such a high level of compassion toward his people that he is not prepared to just sit there idly by while his people suffer. He says, I am going to come in and fix the situation. I will come in and grab hold. I will come in and get you as my people. Something so staggering. I wish I could put it on the screen, but it might confuse you. There is this, this word map that you can pull up about this particular passage. And in Exodus chapter 3, the word I, the personal pronoun I is used 200 164 times. It is overwhelmingly more prevalent than any other pronoun, any other adjective or verb in the text. I, and 99% and, and of the I statements are from God. 
And what it tells us is that his heart is that we would know that he is on our side and that he is the one that is responsible for our redemption. Here's what I want you to see. You know, in corporate America or in many places, we've heard the word that there's no I in team. Is that correct? That's a correct statement. There is no I in team, which, which means that our God wants us to overwhelmingly know that our redemption ain't no team effort. He is not doing, he, it, 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 your, your lifting or your works or your, your stuff is not a part of the redemption. It's, it's a work of the I, the great I am. He's the one that's doing it. There is absolutely no I. Your redemption, again, is not a team effort. But why does God do that? Why does he do it? Galatians chapter 3 has something to say about it that would inform us. Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, if God takes, the, takes redemption on his own shoulders, and which he has done, he has designed redemption in such a way that he takes all the blame and therefore he gets all of the boast. The Bible tells us that redemption is designed not as a work, it is a work of grace and not a work of works so that no one could stand before God and boast. Now, if for, for a moment, that might seem somewhat deflating because we all want to say that we've done something that pleased God. And God does want us to please him. He has created us and he has saved us to do good work. But the first work, the work of redemption, he wants us to know that that is in no way a team effort. All the glory and all the praise goes to him. He is the one who has heard. He is the one who has come down and he is the one who is indeed delivered. And I think we need to know that as we sit here today and we sink in and maybe in the back of our mind and we think about a scenario where we are lying to ourselves saying God helps those who help themselves. And we're trying to muster together some help from our own self. And God's saying that's ridiculous because even once you get all of the help that you could possibly muster, there's still a little bit more help or a lot more help that you need. Because the issue is not just improvement of the circumstances of your life, it is the wholeness of your soul. Does that make sense? Redemption is not just an improvement of the, of the, the circumstances. You, you look around your life and you feel awesome. That's not what redemption is about. Redemption is about the wholeness of the soul. How can I have unbroken communion with my God regardless of the location and the surroundings? Remember how we talked about the great virtues of what it meant for him to be with us. And that is what God is doing in redemption and deliverance. He says, I am committed to being with you regardless of where you are. And so the Bible informs us that the heart of God is that we would know that he is holistically the one who is responsible for our, for our redemption and that he and that he alone is going to swoop in and to do that. In verses 13 through 17, something else awesome happens. It says, uh, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, uh, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God, the, the, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
And this is the, my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them that the Lord your God, the, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying that uh, I have observed you and I have seen what is being done to you in Egypt. And I, this is a new one, I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction. This is so interesting because Moses does ask a good question. I'm going to go to these people who haven't seen me in some years, and those who might remember my reputation are going to know that it is somewhat dubious and they might not fully appreciate me. Lord, what are you going to give me to let, me know, let them know that they can have confidence that I have indeed been with you and that I've seen you and that I'm working on your behalf? What can we do? This is the historic reputation of God being unpacked for us here. He gives us three uh, 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 titles or, or, or three descriptors of himself. I am who I am. Then he says, the Lord God of your fathers. And then he advances the revelation. And he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three things really leap out here at me. That is, God, first of all, most wants us to know that he is eternal. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am not a God who is stuck in time. Whatever problem you're going through, I predate. Whatever solution you're thinking of, I postdate. I am the eternal God. He, he, he wants us to see and to know, but he's not just some enormous supercomputer in the heavens that has got our life figured out on both ends. He says, not only am I and that I am, but I am the Lord God of your father. So not only am I eternal, but I am also relational. I'm interested in being in relationship with you. So all that I am in being eternity, I'm interested in, in allowing you to participate in what it means for me to be eternal. I want to welcome you into eternal life. I want to not only be eternal, but also relational. But then God goes further. He says, tell them that I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So not only let them know that I am the eternal God, not only that I am the relational God, but I am the covenant God. I am the God who is interested in coming in and not only communing, hanging out, fixing issues and problems, but I will make a promise that I will build an agreement with my people. Now, here's the beautiful thing. How many of us use covenant language? I don't talk like that all the time. We, we live in a subdivision that has uh, covenants. And essentially what that means uh, is that even though we live next door to the swimming pool and the tennis court, that if we didn't pay our fee, we can't use it. We have covenants, Right? Uh, but the bigger issue is if I, if I pay my fee, um, not only do I get to use the amenities, but then I also get to have a voice when it comes time to vote in or out new leaders, the treasurer, you know, blah, 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 blah. I get to do that. But the beautiful thing about covenant with our God is that the price, the dues has been paid by him. We don't have to pay a fee. The price that we pay is to lay down our life and to fully trust that God has already done the work. This is one of the greatest and most awesome covenants that there ever was, that God is the guarantor of the covenant because he recognized that we are fundamentally the weakest possible people. Think about all of the covenant relationships in our lives. We have covenants with our employers that says that we won't use a computer for personal stuff. We break it all the time. We make covenants with, with our spouses that says that we'll have and hold and we'll, we'll love them and we'll keep them for better, for worse, and for richer, for poor. And even if we don't leave, sometimes we are lazy about covenant. Like every place where we have covenant in life, we're constantly breaking covenant. God, knowing that about us, says, I'll be the God of covenant and I'll be the guarantor of the covenant. I'll send my son, Jesus Christ, and we'll have covenant that way. The dues have been paid, but I just need you to trust that I paid them. So the Bible says, 
out of this eternal, relational, and covenantal announcement that God is here, I want you to know that I promise that I'll bring you out. Has anybody ever made, been made a promise by somebody who you just had to immediately, if not in your face, in your soul, give them the side eye? You ever had somebody stand on your front porch and make you a promise? We're going to stand behind this product 100% guarantee. And what you do? You be like, whatever. Your mind is filled with a variety of different scenarios where they probably ain't going to stand behind their agreement. You ever bought a car? And they're explaining to you how they're going to stand behind that vehicle bumper to bumper, X number of thousands of miles. And you can think about how many other cars you've had or how many friends you've had with the same vehicle, and they went in for something that was bumper to bumper, and it's like, oh, well, guess what? That's not the bumper. <laughs> or you take a broken issue over there, and what does, what's the number one excuse that car dealerships make? Well, it didn't do it when we had it. Right? You bring an issue over there, and they can't replicate the issue, so they can't fix the issue. Like their warranties and the guarantees and the covenants that we're so accustomed to in our regular lives, they are so fundamentally broken. And so when somebody in almost every aspect of life says they promise, we always know that the promise is like Swiss cheese. It has holes in it somewhere. But with our God, we have a promise that is unbroken and that is unbreakable. And, and the Bible tells us, even it informs us in other places, that, 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 that God makes a promise on the basis of himself. He makes an oath on the basis of himself with his people because he could swear by no greater. In other words, if the covenant breaks down, God is saying, my own integrity is on the line, not your performance. And God wants his people to know that he is an eternal God, a relational God, but also a covenantal God. And he wants to walk in agreement with him. If I could sandwich it or, or, or kind of give it some, some caps here, it would be this. God wants us to know that he is historically faithful and eternally capable. His promises are not empty. He wants us to know that he is historically faithful. If you know anything about the, the God of your fathers, I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, listen, I'm historically faithful. If you can recall anything about their history, I'm historically faithful. But I also want you to know that that, that, that faithfulness is not limited to people from your past. I'm eternally capable, which means it's also applicable to you. And this is the kind of reassurance that God wants us to have as we place our chips all on him. And so, we advance now to chapter 4. So we see this, this, this great and glorious work of God, the hallmark of God, how the holy and the unholy are able to come in and God not be compromised, but he can yet call us up. The heart of God filled with compassion where he is the one that's going to take both the full weight of the covenant and even the blame. The historic reputation of God, it says that you can trust my history as a down payment and a note of what I will perform and how I will do in the future. But then we also move away from the historic reputation of God and the heart of God and the hallmark of God, and we begin to look at the hang-ups of Moses. This is, the, this is our part of the text, the hang-ups of Moses. I want you to look at this. In, in, in these verses, Exodus 4.1, Exodus 4.10, and Exodus 4.12 through 13, I don't know if you get the benefit of that on the screen. Yeah, 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 you've got it. Look at these words. Here is God after having shown up. God, like Hulk Hogan, comes up on Moses and rips his shirt off. and like, yeah, this is what I can do. And then he says, now I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to do it with you, baby. Woo! And Moses goes, but, but, I don't know I can pull that off. So Moses answered, but, 
They will not believe me nor listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Verse 10, but Moses said uh, to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either uh, 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 in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. But could you just please, in verse 12 and 13, now go, go therefore, and I will, I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say. And then Moses says, but, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our story. This is where we sit in so many times. We, we find ourselves, God wanting to invade, rip his shirt off, and show his great glory and capabilities in our lives. And we stand down and start to repeat to him what we can't do when he says, that was never the conversation. We need a wood one of these. Sounds way better when you hit it. But the hangups of Moses are these, and we share in them, great insecurity. He talks about his leadership inability. He's insecure, and he's unable. But guess what happens when we soak in our insecurity of what we're capable of and our inability with what we can't do? Do you see what it translated to in the third episode of, of, of his conversation? An unwillingness. I'm slow of speech, and I don't think they'll believe me. But the real deal is, God, can you just use somebody else? This is an exciting program, but can you just use somebody else? And for many of us, this is where we are. We would prefer that God use us in a place where we are at our best and our strongest. We want God to come alongside and co-op when we're living our best life now and use us so that we can be some kind of co-celebrity with the Christ. But this is not the program that God is interested in. He wants to set a stage for his glory, which is the worst part of my story. And so here it is that every but that Moses give, God is kind enough to counter and remind him of how he has already had a game plan and he will already work through him and with him. And so here's what I want us to know about this. Is that our excuses to not do what God has asked us to do are really pockets of faithlessness masquerading as self-awareness. I want you to understand that everything that Moses said is likely true. He probably is slow of speech. It's likely true that him working alone would not be able to, 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 to cultivate any belief amongst the Israelites. You remember I told you what, what he had done? I mean, he's got, a, he's got a reputation out there that's not stellar. You and I also... How many times as we press the button and we say, gospel hope, you are sent, and you go out, and the moment that you think about sharing the gospel, you say to yourself, well, I'm not really a good speaker. I'm not that exciting. I'm not that compelling. Or how many times do you say to yourself, I don't think people will believe me. Their belief is not contingent on your presentation. And God is saying over and over again, get over yourselves. I'm asking you to go out and share my gospel, not because you're good salespeople, but because I want you to be faithful people. I'm asking you to, to do things for me that are going to put you in a place of discomfort and vulnerability. And the, the ease of what I'm asking you to do doesn't come from the fact that it's easy for you, it's easy in me. And so we need to get over evaluating the largeness of what God wants us to do based on whether or not we think we can do it. He is interested in us investing in the largeness of him. The worst part of your life is the best stage for his glory. And so, when we look at the hangups of Moses, one of the things that we need to understand is this quite clearly, is that our hangups do not constitute hiccups in God's plan. 
It doesn't matter what hangups you have, none of them constitute a hiccup in God's plan. When he covenanted with, the, 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 with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God covenanted with us to be our God in Christ, if we would place him there, he fully knew what he was getting into. He knows all of our hiccups. He knows all of our hangups. And none of them caused him to have to look for a plan B. And so God comes along and he says to Moses, what do you have in your hands? This is the beautiful part of the passage. It won't be on the screen, but if you could just kind of walk with me in the story. Moses in chapter 4 throws up all of these excuses. You, somebody else, I'm not good at speaking, and I don't think they'll believe me. What will I do? How can I, how can I convince these folks to follow me? And God says, what is in your hand? Oh, you got that staff? Let me show you what I'll do with that. Throw it on the ground, it becomes a serpent. You pick it back up, it turns into a staff again. God comes along, he says, all right, take your hand, put it inside your cloak, pull it out, it becomes leprous, you put it back in, and the leprosy is gone. Reach into the Nile, pick up some water, lay it on dry ground, and it, and it turns to blood, and pick it up in there. I'll, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you symbols. I'm going to give you signs. I'm going to give you the ability. I just want you to be willing to use your hands. I just want you to bring to the table what I created you with and gave you, and I will give them power beyond what they normally have. And so I'm begging you and asking you for anybody out there who is faced with an incredible opportunity of obedience and you believe it's too big for you, it probably is, but that's part of the design to get you to glorify God. It's okay to do things that are bigger than you. Man, gospel hope, I'm going to tell you, I dream of a day. I dream of a day where people will want to sit down and talk to me and Pastor Ryan, and they'll ask us about our particular things that we've been able to accomplish, and we'll have to sit there and drop our heads because it won't be because of systems or plan or technology or diversity or our worship strategy. It'll be because God just graced us for his glory, and we just happen to be standing there with our hands. Oh, you got me, Kevin. <laughs> and so, here's what the scriptures would have us to know. In the book of Ephesians, the Bible tells us that we have been created for works that were designed beforehand and that we are the workmanship, we are his workmanship in him. And because the work that God would have us to do, the works were created beforehand, then its perfection and success is not contingent upon our hands. God wants to work through us, and he wants to work through our hands in works prepared beforehand so that the perfection is not contingent on our hands. Let that soak in. We will regularly be called into assignments that are larger than us so that God gets maximum glory through and from us. Now, we've talked a lot about today about the, the great power of God, the holiness of God, his capacity, his faithfulness, and his ability. We've talked a lot about all these things that he can do. But I want you to understand that, 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 that all the great, the, 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 the weight of this text, the benefit of this text, the beauty of this text, the benefit of this text are all within the context of a covenant relationship with God. It is God who is initiating it and doing it all on the premise that he made a promise in Abraham. And I want to uh, uh, make you aware today that if you are looking to trust God and you're, you're sitting here, maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saying to yourself, man, I'll sign up for some of that. 
I want God to come in my life and just, yeah, pull up a you know, macho man, Randy Savage, or a Hulk Hogan. I want God to come in my life and show off. I would love to be the beneficiary of this kind of great de- deliverance. I would love to know that God would work through my hands. Yeah, God, I'll sign up for that. Well, here's what signing up for that means. Here's what it means. is This great glory and great awesomeness of God, all within the context of covenant relationship. Well, how does one have a covenant relationship with our God? We have covenant with God. He's already made the covenant. He's already framed the covenant in Christ. The call then is to trust that he has made this covenant. And that trust is defined this way. You and I come to say, Lord, I'm unholy and my hands are useless and my heart is bad. And whatever you're doing, I want to be a part of it. Will you? Can you? Can I come in? The covenant that we, that, that we have with God is not contingent on you or I paying a price. God has already paid the price in Christ. And he just asks us to trust that he has indeed done that. And when we trust that God has paid the price for what? Not just for our benefits, but he paid the price for our sin. That he indeed became a curse for us. That we were the ones that should have taken the arrow from God. That we were the ones that should have died for our own sin. That Jesus Christ was actually a loving, willing, necessary substitute for us on the cross. When we trust God in that way, God says, now, come on, let's do covenant. And let's do a covenant that is in no way contingent on your ability to fulfill it. It's totally on me. But can we trust God in that way? Because to trust God to do that great work in our lives and to trust God in the way that he worked in Christ is to totally distrust ourselves. To divest all of my personal self-sufficiency that I have to say to myself, regardless of how much good I have done, none of it can gain me a relationship with God. I must come in on a covenant relationship, and it is a covenant of grace that where your works have no merit. So, I don't know where you are in your relationship. Perhaps you are a person who is experiencing one of the worst chapters in your personal life. I want to encourage you that if this is one of the worst parts of your story, man, are you on the precipice of a sequel for the best stage of God's glory. You are. You are. But will you trust him? If you're a person out there who you know that God is pulling on your heart, you believe in the Lord and you're trying your best to follow him, but you feel like you have before you and faced with a task that is so far above and beyond you, guess what? You are officially right. And glory be to God that he would welcome you into this stage of his glory. He wants to use you in a way where he only gets the credit and only Christ is the one in which we would have our boast. And if you're here today and you says, man, this is a virtual foreign language. I don't even remember the story. But I know what, if God is inviting me to experience his glory, I want in on it. You too. You can do that. It's not exotic. It's not complicated. It's quite simple. Will you divest? Will you stop trusting totally in self and put your full weight on him and the work that he has done in Christ? And you can experience the glory of this great God working in your life. Let's pray. Father.